Hello, my name is Kyle. I am from Common Ground Church in Seapoint, and it's a privilege to uh, be with you today uh, sharing the message. And this is how I want to start off. Um, picture in your mind, a genie, a doctor, and Jesus of Nazareth walk into a bar. It sounds like a joke. It's, it's not a joke. It's a scenario, and you are in the middle of it. You are also sitting in that bar, and you get to approach each of these three people and have them look you in the eyes and say to you, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? I want you to just think for a moment on, on how you would answer each one of these people, each one of these individuals. And keep, keep that thought, keep this, this scenario in the back of your head uh, as we go through this message. Because I think the honest answers uh, to each of those questions will reveal a lot about you, yourself, your view of the world, your view of life, your view of the afterlife, if you believe there is such a thing, as well as your view of the nature of each of those people who in fact really are these three individuals. And so keep that in the back of your head. How would you answer that question? What do you want me to do for you? <clears throat> And it's going to come out as we unpack today's passage. And what is today's passage? Where are we? We are in the Gospel of Mark. It is the earliest biography of the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And today we're coming to the end of Act 2 of essentially a three-act drama. Act 1 is set up north in a place called Galilee where Jesus is doing ministry. Act 2 is his journey south from Galilee uh, on the way to Jerusalem, which is where Act 3 takes place. And today we are right at the end of Act 2. And what have we had in Act, Act 2? We have had uh, blocks of teaching, quite strong teaching from Jesus around sin, around hell, around divorce, quite big controversial topics. Uh, we've had the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus uh, was... Uh, glorified before his disciples and before the father. We've had scenes of demons being cast out of people. And we've had a couple of interesting interactions. We've had interactions with children, encounters with children where Jesus praised their childlike faith, their dependence or their need to be dependent. And he kept on saying people like them are the people who will enter the kingdom of God, who will inherit the kingdom of God, who will get to experience the rule and reign of God in their lives. And then last week, we had an encounter with the rich young man, the rich young ruler, who was unable to let go of his wealth, essentially his, his false functional God, in order to be able to actually follow Jesus, the son of the true God. So that's where we've come from. And... <clears throat> This whole second act is kind of bound together by three conversations that Jesus has with his disciples. Act two begins with it, uh, it ends with it, and in the middle is also um, a similar conversation. And these three conversations all kind of sound the same in, 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 in one sense. Jesus is telling them that he is going to die, that he is going to be buried, that he is going to rise again. And then he follows that with... Um, a discourse essentially on the nature of life in the kingdom, life under the rule and reign of God and what it looks like for people coming in the wake of Jesus' death and resurrection. And by the end of today's story, we'll come to the end of act two where the stage will be set for Jesus to enter in to Jerusalem for act three. And this is where we're going. We're basically gonna look at two stories that culminate act two. Um, the first is 
the third conversation. I've said we've got three conversations all through Act 2. We're going to look at the third one, the third and final one. And after that, we're going to look at the final healing in the Gospel of Mark. So those are the two passages, the two stories we're going to look at, the third conversation and the final healing. So let's jump into the first one, the third conversation. It's Mark chapter 10, verse 32 to 45. You can read with me. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Why are people amazed and afraid that Jesus is is walking ahead? I think it's because um, they know he's going towards his death. He's kept talking about it, and yet he is intentionally, intently marching forward ahead of everybody else, resolute, uh, heading towards his death. And that is both amazing and frightening for those who are following him. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man, that's him, will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand at one at your left hand in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard this, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is the third conversation that roughly sounds like this. Jesus predicts his death, burial, resurrection, and then talks about what life is gonna look like for his followers under the rule and reign of God. And what are some of the unique things maybe about this version of the conversation? It's the first time that Jesus explicitly states the fact that he's gonna be crucified. That's gonna be his means of death. And he speaks about it in graphic detail. He's gonna be flogged, he's gonna be mocked, he's gonna be spat on. And then he's gonna be handed over to the Jews. And then he's gonna be handed over to the Gentiles, the Romans. That was how the court system worked in that day. And when you get to the end of the gospel of Mark, you will note that every single thing that he says is gonna happen, comes to pass. Jesus' prophetic picture of his future is stunningly accurate. But what I want us to notice today in this particular passage is the key phrase, the key phrase in this conversation. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Now, previously, many times, Jesus Two previous times, Jesus has spoken about his suffering and the disciples have dismissed it or they've changed the topic and they've spoken about who among them was actually the greatest. And here we have two of them, James and John, 
two of his real inner circle, asking Jesus to be at his left and at his right, the two great positions of power, essentially, when Jesus enters into his glory. And remember, they, they think, they're thinking that Jesus is heading to Jerusalem for a political military takeover, and they essentially wanna be his deputies. That's the idea. They wanna be his, his right hand and his left hand man. And what this whole conversation is once again revealing is the fact that they don't get Jesus. They still don't get Jesus. They want status, they want power, they want position. And it rubs the other disciples up the wrong way, which is fair enough. They all get very angry at James and John. And there's a few things to notice here. Uh, Firstly, Jesus is actually quite open about the fact that the truth is there are positions of power and honor in the kingdom. Uh, but God's the one that gives them. You can't earn your way to them. They're not reserved for the most ambitious or even the most faithful disciples necessarily. And what we see here is that there are requests that Jesus himself either cannot or will not grant. There are requests that Jesus cannot and will not grant. In this case, it's up to the Father. He is the one who has established this. And it's not up to Jesus And it's also not what he's about. It's not what he is doing. It's not what he is going about accomplishing here. And it's interesting. You just go look at the way it happens. James and John approach him and their initial request to Jesus is grant us whatever we want. Will you grant us whatever we ask for? Are you going to do our bidding, Jesus? That's the tone. That's the the posture that they come to Jesus with. And Jesus is not a cosmic butler, as you, know, you might describe him, or in the words of our scenario today, he's not a genie. Jesus is not a genie who just gives you what you want, no matter what. That's not who Jesus is. And I would say he is too good and he is too kind to simply recklessly get our requests and hit reply all and just type yes and click send to everything that we ask him. He's He's far too good, he's far too kind, he's far too wise to do that. And and I wanna say, if we actually think about it, if we had enough time to think about that and enough experience in life, I reckon we would all come to the conclusion eventually that actually we don't want a genie who will just give us whatever we want, whatever our hearts desire. And I look at my son Harrison right now And there are many things that his heart desires. And I'm so glad that he's got a father who loves him, who cares for him, who doesn't just give him what he wants. Okay, here are some of the scenarios, literally just from the last week. What Harrison wants to do is take a wet face cloth and approach the plugs and the plug points with this wet face cloth. It's a terrible, terrible idea. Harrison wants to take the boxes. We're moving house, we're packing. He wants to take the boxes and set them up to be a staircase that he can climb up to get to the window and open the window of our third story flat. It's a terrible, terrible idea that I, that I prevent him from seeing through to its conclusion. I got to encounter him last week, rummaging through the, the cupboard under the sink in the kitchen. Typically cupboards under the sink in the kitchen contain washing powder, jick, bleach, things that he wants to spread out everywhere and consume. To Harrison, my little son, to his eyes, these things look glorious. They look delightful. In his heart, he desires them, okay? He wants to be authentic to himself and act on everything that is in his little heart. He doesn't want my oppressive 
rules, stopping him from doing these things. But my goodness, I am so glad that I am wiser than him and that I love him more than he thinks I do. And so James and John, they don't get Jesus. They want power, they want influence, they want status. They don't get Jesus and they don't get the subversive nature of the kingdom of God. We keep coming back to this point also in the gospel of Mark. They expect glory without suffering. They're expecting a king without a cross. And Jesus keeps saying again, true life is about denying yourself. True greatness is about serving others. We are called to serve others rather than to be served. And Jesus, he loves them. Much like when he looked at the rich young ruler and it says that he loved him, Jesus too loves these guys too much to simply let them go on blindly thinking the wrong things, believing the wrong things about him and his kingdom. And to be honest, believing the wrong things about the nature of reality. So he reminds them that his death, Jesus' death is the foundation and the example of the kingdom of God. True greatness and glory is to die for the good of others and to lay down your life to serve others. And that is literally what Jesus has come to Jerusalem to do. That's what he is doing. And he's not just coming to take a bullet for some friends. He is coming to drink the cup of cosmic wrath that is meant for you and I. He is coming to take our punishment on himself. He's gonna be baptized with cosmic wrath on our behalf. Jesus, the son of man, came to serve us. And he uses the language of, he came to be a ransom for many. He has come to give his life as a payment to set us free from our sins. Our sins get atoned for by the death of Jesus. He is our substitutionary atonement. That's who he is. That's what he does. That's what he came to do. And you got James and John who came to him asking, hey, can we be on your left and your right in your glory? And when was Jesus' glory? Jesus' glory was when he was on the cross. Instead of a throne, he got a cross. Instead of a crown of gold, he got a crown of thorns. It was him entering glory through suffering. And if you, if you skip ahead in the story, you will recognize that Jesus did have someone on his left and his right when he came to glory. It was two thieves who were on the cross next to him. It's an interesting picture of people bearing their crosses with Jesus. That's what it looks like when we follow Jesus. We take up our crosses, we deny ourselves, and we follow him. Jesus died for our sins so that we can be free, but his death is also the example of how our lives are meant to look. Poured out in service for others and in suffering. It's what we're signing up for. It's what we're signing up for. So Jesus has that question, what do you want me to do for you? James and John did not understand Jesus and so they gave him the wrong answer to that question. They thought he was a genie. So that's the first story, the third conversation in act two. Now let's look at the final healing in the gospel of Mark. We carry on verse 46 to 52. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. 
And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him on the way. Do you hear the question again? What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? So let's just look at the story a little closer here. Jericho, <clears throat> it's not exactly the same city that many of you might remember from the Old Testament, um, but it's close. It's basically new Jericho to the old Jericho. Um, Kind of like you've got new Delhi uh, to the old Delhi. It's like a new upgraded version of the city that's really nearby. And to be honest, Jericho is not unlike Cape Town. It was literally established, much like Cape Town was literally established uh, as a refreshment station. It was built around an oasis to serve people who were traveling from one side of the known world to the other. It was a stop-off point uh, for people to relax and get refreshed. And if you think about it, Jericho was the ideal place for a beggar to sit. It was literally on the highway. People would have come from the east through Perea, across the Jordan, into Judea, on their way to Jerusalem or a whole bunch of other cities and vice versa. The traffic would have gone the other way. So he was literally sitting at the perfect place to, um, to be able to beg and, and, and get stuff from other people. And Bartimaeus was both blind and a beggar. To be honest, his blindness is probably what caused him to end up being a beggar. And so he was the lowest of the low in society. He was consistently dependent on others. He was just like a child in that society. And in this scene, you'll notice he is treated just like a child. Last week, when we were looking at the story of the rich young ruler, just before that, there was Jesus' interaction with the children. And when the children were coming to Jesus, the disciples rebuked the children. And here we've got Bartimaeus trying to call out and come to Jesus and the crowds rebuke him. He's like a child and he's being treated like a child. And it's a very intentional connection that Mark is making. The the crowds don't welcome the one who is least of all and last of all in their society. They're literally doing the opposite of what Jesus has been asking. And unlike the rich young ruler from last week who asked Jesus, came to Jesus and said, what do I need to do? And unlike James and John, who asked Jesus to give them whatever they wanted on their terms in terms of status and power, Bartimaeus here is is far simpler. He's far more childlike. He's far more in line with who Jesus is and what the kingdom of God is all about. And you'll notice that when when he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. The, the, the title son of David is connected with the Messiah. This only comes up twice in the gospel of Mark. It's, it's connected with the, the figure of the anointed one, the one who is anointed by God's spirit to set people free. And he recognizes Jesus of Nazareth, not just as some random teacher, a rabbi, but as the rightful king of Israel, the one who is descended from the great king of Israel, David. He's the prophesied one who's gonna set up God's kingdom, a kingdom that's never gonna disappear. He's gonna sit on his throne eternally and never leave that throne. 
He's the one who's coming to restore Israel to who they were meant to be, to get about um, restoring the world through them. Jesus is the son of David who is coming to defeat the powers of Satan, sin, and death and bring about God's blessing to the nations. That's who Jesus is. And instead of asking Jesus to do whatever he wants on his terms, Bartimaeus comes to him with a humble, in a humble posture and literally cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. The tone is completely different to James and John. <clears throat> and it's to, it's to this cry of have mercy on me that Jesus then asks him, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And he asks for the restoration of his sight. He knows who Jesus is. He knows what he truly needs in this moment. And you'll notice, unlike the rich young ruler from last week, Bartimaeus leaves all that he has behind. His one coat, his one coat, that's all he owns. It's the one thing that keeps him warm. It's the one thing that he can use as a mattress to sleep on at night. It's the one thing he can use to store the loose change that people toss his way. And he is happy to throw this down and spring to his feet and ultimately leave it all behind to follow Jesus on his path towards Jerusalem. That's how the story ends. What I want us to notice here about Bartimaeus is he's a blind man, but he didn't have blind faith. He's a blind man, but he didn't have blind faith. He has childlike faith in the person of Jesus. Okay, he knew exactly who he was trusting, who he was believing. Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth, the, the historical person of Jesus of Nazareth, who died, who was buried, who has risen again, who is alive today. That same Jesus, that specific Jesus is the person who cures both physical and spiritual blindness. He did it then, he still does it today. In fact, even at the end of this passage, when Jesus says to Bartimaeus, um, your faith has made you well. The literal rendering of that is your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Hebrew thought, the thought of the Bible uh, has a tight connection between physical and spiritual well-being and physical and spiritual salvation. They are tied together in a holistic concept. They don't divide things neatly like we often do today. And to be honest, we're meant to believe that. If you are someone who has been saved from your sin and its consequences because of what Jesus did on the cross, you too will have physical healing, complete restoration one day when you will be free from sickness, free from death because you will be raised to physical life in a very physical, real, immortal body to live forever. It's part of the whole package of salvation. That's what Jesus offers. That's who Jesus is. That's what he is about. And to be honest, the world often thinks when they think of Christ followers, when I watch TV shows and they are portraying people of faith, people who love Jesus, um, they, they think that what we are doing is taking a clear-sighted, rational, intellectual view of the world and casting that completely aside for some sort of blind faith in a vague deity. That's how the Christian faith is portrayed. And that's not what it is. That's not who we are. That's not what we believe. That's not what we do. Friends, we are not 
No one in this world is, is clear seeing spiritual people that simply need blind faith or heaven forbid faith in ourselves like the world consistently preaches to us. No, this is who we are, everyone. Every single person is actually, like Bartimaeus, spiritually blind people who are in need of childlike faith in the person of Jesus. Not blind, vague faith, childlike faith in the very real person of Jesus. And if you are listening to this today, wherever you might be, in Cape Town, South Africa, maybe around the world, if you haven't trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, Today is the day to do that. Today is the day to do that. Recognize your need. Recognize that your sins have separated you from God. Recognize that when you are still in your sins, you are still under the wrath and judgment of God. Recognize that you need Jesus not to just be a genie to give you whatever you want. You need Jesus to be the great physician. You need to approach him as a great doctor and say, tell me what is wrong with me and then fix it. And what Jesus will do is Jesus will do spiritual heart surgery on you and remove your old heart and give you a new heart. You need to come to Jesus and say, give me the diagnosis. Give me the real diagnosis. It's bad. Okay, then help me. Help me. Have mercy on me and help me. And he will, with the, the precious hands of the great physician, come and do spiritual soul work on you. As you repent of your sin, you repent, you turn away from your old way of viewing the world, your old way of viewing yourself and God. And you, you put your faith in him. You trust that what he did on the cross is enough to pay for your sins. You will receive a new heart and a new life. And for the rest of us who are listening, I wanna remind us that faith is not simply the first step of the journey. Faith in Jesus is every single step of the journey. We start this journey with Jesus by faith, trusting in him for our salvation. But then we keep trusting in him by obeying him and listening to him and following him. Believing his words, believing his ways, believing his wisdom. As we live this life under the rule and reign of God. It's not willpower that's gonna take us the next few steps of our faith and our life. It is faith in Jesus. Obedience and following Jesus is simply faith in action. And that's what he's calling us to. So go back with me, right to the beginning of the message. Let's go back to the scene in the bar. A genie, a doctor, Jesus are in this bar, you are there too. Maybe you were conflating these, these three at the beginning. You were seeing Jesus more like a genie than a doctor. Either way, forget the genie and the doctor for now. Think of Jesus. Narrow your whole field of vision to Jesus. He comes to you and he says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? My call to you right now is reach a conviction today on how you would answer him, on what you would say to him. Reach a conviction on who you believe he is. Reach a conviction on what you believe your greatest need is and what wisdom and insight you need in your life right now. And then come to him humbly. 
Come like a child, come like someone who needs mercy and say, help me. What is the next step of faith? What is the next step in this life? What is the next step on my journey with you? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this story today, these two stories where you came to two very different groups of people who responded to you very differently and you asked them, what do you want me to do for you? God, help us, help us to come humbly like Bartimaeus, to come to you and cry out for mercy, not just for the first time when we recognize our sin before you, but every single day recognizing that we have blind spots still in our lives. There are parts of our, our lives and our hearts that are still dark and we need you to open our hearts, open our eyes, shine light on there so that we can walk in freedom. And so help us, God, help us to trust you, help us to follow you, help us to be those who are obedient from the heart. You have a great journey for each and every person who is listening to to walk on and you walk it with us. And so God, help us to, to leave everything behind and get on the road like Bartimaeus did with you at the end of the story and to walk by faith with you. We love you, we trust you, we need you. Amen.